0: Welcome to
1: the Black Sparrow Media, Internet Broadcast Network. Well, hello everybody and welcome. To a new, a brand shiny new episode of Linux in the Ham Shack. This one has episode number 159 attached to it. Wow, we've done 159 episodes. Amazing. It is truly it's amazing. It's also
0: a brand shiny new year, too. It is too. true.
1: This is the 4th of January 2016 as we're recording this. Happy New Year to everyone out there. Yay! Hopefully your 2016 will be better than your 2015 but anyway i'm your host russ k5 t u x and across from me is cheryl
0: maybe i'm not across from you
1: and maybe you are
0: maybe i'm in another room you just don't know it
1: i I would think i would know it if you were
0: maybe you never know
1: no i think i would know actually really yeah really whatever (laughs) so and we are awaiting pete v2xpl who says he will be here at some point but he is not here now so, let's just dive in to our episode number 159. We'll start with uh, our first topic, which is Star Wars has amateur radio connection. Ben Burt, sound designer of the Star Wars films, is a ham radio enthusiast and avid SWL, which is shortwave listener for those people who aren't familiar with that acronym. My grandfather, Harold Burt, operated W8CD, which he ate Charlie Delta out of his home in Columbus, Ohio, from the 30s to the 60s, says Burt I was enthralled as a kid listening to the sounds on his receiver. I heard alien worlds and cosmic voices. I hear those too, but that's just in my head. So not only did I record his radio, but continued to do so on the Star Wars series and Star Trek as well. My memory of the Hoth transmission, that's the Hoth invasion from Empire Strikes Back, was that it was WWV, but it could have been CHU since I was recording all that interested me on the dial. For listeners who may be less familiar with Ben Burt's work, check out his Wikipedia page and IMDb profile. Uh, Burt is spelled B-U-R-T-T, by the way. You will find he's been the sound designer on numerous influential films, including the recently released Star Wars The Force Awakens. And I got that from com, Sierra, Whiskey, Lima, India, November, golf.com. The link to that, of course, will be in the show notes, and that's pretty cool. And since we're talking about Star Wars, we can digress briefly and say that we both recently saw The Force Awakens after I made sure I'll see all of the original movies except for number one, which he still has not seen. Because you are
0: going on the machete order.
1: We were going on the machete order, and the idea is that you don't really need to see number one because there's nothing in it you need to know to watch the rest of the movies, which I still maintain is true.
0: No, because you already know that Jar Jar is annoying.
1: That's, that's very true. That's pretty much all you learn from The Phantom Menace. I think The Phantom Menace actually refers to Jar Jar, not the Empire. I see. Anyway, so we had mixed opinions about the movie. You said you liked it. You, you're actually a bigger fan of the, the more modern movies. Yeah,
0: I like the more modern ones and the older ones. But I will actually tell you that I have seen several friends comment about it on Facebook. Those that did not like it the first time they saw it in the theater actually gave it a second try and came home and said they did like it. So everybody complained that it was just like the rest of them, you know, right. rehashed, which I think was your complaint as well. That was,
1: that was my biggest complaint, was that yeah. it was basically the same movies all over again.
0: Uh, funny, that's how they all kind of seem to me, no, for the most part.
1: I, I didn't have that experience. So are we going to give Disney more of our money? Is that what you're telling me? Maybe you should. What do you mean maybe I should? If I'm going to watch it again, so are you.
0: That's fine, I'll sit and watch it again,
1: because right. I liked it. So enough about Star Wars. It's interesting that uh, the sound designer had a uh, ham radio connection, plus we got to talk about Star Wars. So moving on, you can do the next one.
0: Bill Vanderhyde, November 7, Oscar uh, uniform, SK. Well-known contester and de expeditioner, William Bill Vanderhyde of Portland, Oregon, died December 31st after a lengthy illness. He was seventy. A member of the AWRL and the Williamette Valley DX Club, he had operated from a dozen islands in the South Pacific as well as from several in the Caribbean, often combining amateur radio with service in the Global Volunteers Organization, helping out in local classrooms. Bill's career as an educator, teaching for over 30 years in the Portland area, and after retirement, volunteered at Portland area schools.
1: Yep, so that's a sad note. Uh, this story came from the ARRL, so you can check out more of that over there if you want to. Uh, he had been with many expeditions, and I want to say that I would heard him on recent podcasts, if I'm not mistaken, uh, talking about expeditions in various places. Don't quote me on that, but I do believe his name has come up recently. So we're sorry to hear about Bill's passing, and as a longtime contester and DXer, I'm sure he will be missed on the airwaves. So with that, we're going to move on to uh, a little more interesting well, I don't, don't want to say that's uninteresting, but a, a more upbeat story, I guess. The U.S. and Canadian amateurs participate in 600-meter experimentation. Experimental station licenses in the United States, including some AORL 600-meter experimental group, Whiskey Delta II X-Ray Sierra Hotel participants, and radio amateurs in Canada, took part in a special event operation over the November 13th and 14th weekend, which also involved the Maritime Radio Historical Society. The event marked the 109th anniversary of the Berlin Treaty, which established SOS as the official distress signal and 500 kHz as the official distress band. Canadian amateurs had invited cross-band contacts with the U.S. experimental licensees and several took place. Amateur radio operators in Canada gained access to 472 to 479 kHz on May 1, 2014. In the United States, the FCC has allocated 135.7 to 137.8 kilohertz to the amateur radio service on a secondary basis, in accordance with the final acts of the 2007 World Radio Communication Conference, uh, Whiskey Radio Charlie 07. The commission also has proposed a secondary 630-meter amateur radio allocation at 472 to 479 kilohertz, Implementing decisions are to be made at WRC 12. The FCC has not yet permitted amateur radio operation in either band, but apparently there are some U.S. amateurs who are licensed to operate at those frequencies who are actually able to participate in this. It's interesting because those are extremely long wave frequencies and they're not really used except, I think, for like submarine communications outside of where the amateur radio operators are able to use them now. So that's kind of a cool thing. Uh, most people don't really even think about operating at frequencies below 160 meters. So I thought that was uh, kind of a cool story, and there may be more frequency allocations open up to U.S. amateurs uh, in the future. We'll see what happens with the 600-meter band. And that story, by the way, came from the ARRL also. So that's our amateur radio stuff for tonight or at least our amateur radio-specific topics. So we're going to move on to some Linux and open source stuff. If you want to tackle this first one.
0: Sure, because this was something I actually posted about, I don't know, six months or so ago, was li- uh, using Linux in uh, the automotive aspect. So anyway, our next story is Linux Foundation Accelerates Automotive-Grade Linux. Linux is driving into 2016 with new members joining the automotive-grade Linux project and a new unified code base distribution to enable the next generation of automotive technology. AGL is run as a Linux Foundation collaborative project. The first got started in September of 2012. Ford, Mazda, Mitsubishi, and Subaru are all now officially joining the ranks of the AGL project alongside existing members, which include Toyota, Nissan, Jaguar, Land Rover, and Honda. AGL's goals include expanding the use of Linux in the automotive industry. Back in 2014, AGL released its first reference platform, which was built on top of a Tizen IVI, which is an in-vehicle infotainment, and primarily focused on demo applications. The AGL project has now put in place the development infrastructure needed to host the new unified codebase, DISTRO, including Git code repositories. Jira Code Review, Jira bug Tracking, and Jenkins Continuous Integration Technologies. The AGL's infrastructure is all hosted by the Linux Foundation and operated under an open-source governance structure. Although AGL was initially focused on IVI, there are plans to develop different profiles for instrument clusters, heads-up displays, telematics, and control systems. And this story was gotten from eWii.
1: Which is very cool. I'm, I'm very interested in seeing Linux involved in the automotive industry because we need to get the Microsoft platforms and stuff that they're using for uh, in, in-car entertainment and in-car control systems out of there because we all know that that's much buggier software, and it would be really cool if uh, open source actually infiltrated the automotive market and could be used for these different projects. So, I'm glad to see that there are a lot of car makers on board with this, and I'm sure it will get uh, more wider acceptance as it goes along. It's still kind of in its infancy. And I kind of gather from the story that they're actually thinking about possibly using it for automated navigation, like when cars, like Google cars, drive themselves and stuff like that. So, that could be Linux in the future.
0: I hear about the Google car that got uh, stopped for driving too slow, even though there was somebody in the car with it?
1: No, nope, I hadn't heard about that one.
0: There was there was somebody behind the wheel, but the car was driving too slow and causing traffic congestion, from what I understand.
1: Well, this whole idea of automated cars and, and things like that, there, there aren't even laws on the books to deal with you know driverless cars yet. So there, there's going to be a lot of growing pains going forward when it comes to uh, dealing with this new technology. So uh, this is far from the last we're going to hear about automated driving.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it was actually um, November 13th. It was driving too slowly, 24 miles an hour in a 35-mile-an-hour zone. There was a passenger in the car, uh, and he found out about the California vehicle code. That was a deal with that, but it was in Mountain View, California.
1: Like I said, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about this later. So, moving on from cars and Linux, let's talk about Android and Linux. Since we're kind of on a Google thing right now, Uh, Android to use OpenJDK. Google's planned mobile operating system, which has been referred to as Android N, will leverage OpenJDK's APIs rather than Google's own Java implementation alone. The move has been praised as good for Java overall and might help the company in an ongoing legal battle with Oracle. As an open source platform, Android is built upon the collaboration of the open source community. In our upcoming release of Android, we plan to move Android's Java language libraries to an OpenJDK-based approach, creating a common code base for developers to build apps and services, Google has said. Google has long worked with and contributed to the OpenJDK community, and we look forward to making even more contributions to the OpenJDK project in the future. Unquote. Future releases of Android will still be based on Google's own implementation, but will use OpenJDK, Google explained in a published report. Google could not be immediately reached for comment on the planned release date for Android N. So I'm not actually sure how this is going to impact the average user of Android, but they may be doing it as a mitigation factor for their litigation with Oracle, or they may just be using OpenJDK because it's a project that they contribute to. But either way, it's pushing Android, I guess, further into the open space, even though Android is supposed to be open source already. For anybody who's actually tried to install Android on anything but an Android device, like, uh, you know, a Samsung phone or anything like that, you'll find that it's not as open source as it probably should be. We have one more story in our open source area. Do you want to tackle this one, or do you want me to do it?
0: I can do it.
1: All right, well, if you want to do it, go for it.
0: I'm capable of reading.
1: I am capable of reading.
0: Ransom 32 JavaScript-based ransomware spotted in the wild.
1: Ooh. Uh. Ooh, uh, Uh, Or actually, it should be like, dun-dun-dun. Yeah, exactly.
0: Or JAWS theme or something. Yeah, Yeah, something Uh, like that. uh, uh, (laughs) So far, the only Ransom32 variants spotted in the wild have targeted Windows machines. But it uses the nw.js framework that allows an application to be written once, yet be instantly usable on Windows. Linux and MasaWix OSX. Ransom32 is being sold as a service, but ransomware as a service is not new. For example, the Tox ransomware to- uh, developer wanted 30% of the ransom payment and the Fakben team requested a 10% cut of the profit. Ransom32 offers a- author's excuse me, want a 25% cut for customized versions of its currently undecryptable ransomware. Like other crypto malware campaigns, Want-to-be bad guys sign up on a hidden server on the Tor network and get their own customized Ransom32 ransomware after inputting the Bitcoin address where the ransom is to be delivered. Right now, the infection comes via spam emails that trick victims into installing the compressed RAR file, which self-extracts and creates a shortcut in the user's startup folder named Chrome Service that will make sure the malware is executed on every boot. It encrypts the victim's files, photos, documents, and other data so the when the machine is started, the victim sees a ransom note demanding payment in bitcoins. Victims are given four days to cough up payment before the ransom amount jacks up even higher. So far, Ransom32 has stayed somewhat under the radar as its signature didn't get added to AV detection due to NW.js being a legitimate framework. If you haven't backed up your data lately, then it's a good habit to develop and something important enough that it should be included in your New Year's resolutions. And that story was found on the ComputerWorld.com website.
1: Yeah, this is interesting. Somebody has actually created malware out of a legitimate JavaScript framework and then published it so that it is potentially available to all operating systems. And because it's cloaked in the guise of a legitimate framework, it's not being detected by antivirus systems, at least not well yet. Uh, apparently its signature detection is pretty poor right now. So definitely be on the lookout for this and definitely back up your files so that if you ac- actually happen to be infected with this at some point, you don't have to worry about paying the ransom to the ransomware providers. You can actually just recover all of your data, which is something you should be doing no matter what, regardless of viruses or anything like that. I mean, because anything like a hard drive failure, power failure, computer failure, whatever, can cause you to lose all of your important information. Can't stress the importance of backups, backups, backups.
0: Do you do backups? I
1: do do backups.
0: When was the last time you backed up my computer?
1: Um, Does your computer have anything on it that needs to be saved?
0: There's a boatload of pictures.
1: Well, then maybe you should be backing it up.
0: Maybe you should be updating my software.
1: Well, that has nothing to do with backups.
0: It's all part of you going in and actually sitting down on my computer and doing stuff.
1: Maybe you should do it.
0: That's not my job.
1: Yes, it is. No, I'm not. You you operate your computer. You should back it up.
0: Uh, Why do I have a computer geek in the house again?
1: Not to coddle you.
0: Oh, harsh. (laughs) Well, next time that you need something, I'll be like, no, I'm not going to coddle you. I see. Uh Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. All right. So with that, we're going to move on to our Linux in the Ham Shack segment, which I can hopefully make interesting just out of a list of things that I have here since I don't actually have details, but I do have all of the websites up, so hopefully I can give out some pertinent information as we go through these. Uh, But what I want to talk about is the variety out there of PC to ham radio interfaces, which if you're using ham radio and you're using Linux in your ham shack, then you probably need one of these devices or something along these lines if you don't want to build a custom interface between your computer and your radio. So there are several companies out there who have created devices. Some of these we have talked about on the show before and some of them we have not. So I'm going to go through first the ones, well, first kind of the ones that we've talked about before and then a couple that we have not touched on and then talk about sort of what the features are and maybe some of the price characteristics and stuff like that. And um, I'm not sure if this is it's not really going to be a review or a compare and contrast, but it's just going to kind of let you know what's out there in the way of PC to ham radio interfaces uh, so you'll know what you might be in for when you go out to purchase one of these if you don't have one already. What you want these for is to use digital modes. You know, some of these are required if you want to do Uh, PSK31, or any of the other digital modes that are supported like for FL Digi, you know, like Olivia and Hellschreiber and rid and stuff like that. Some of them can be used for other sound card-based data transmission protocols like WeFax or APRS or anything that needs a sound card or a push-to-talk or other radio integration. So the ones that I've got here, and I have six different companies that i'm going to talk about the first one is buxcom b-u-x-c-o-m-m they're the manufacturer of a lot of different ham radio products but the one that we're going to talk about is their pc to ham radio link which is the rascal now they make the rascal glx which is actually a product that i have in my ham shack And basically, it has an audio out and an audio in interface, and then it has a 5-pin DIN plug, which can be uh, manually configured, or they have some pre-made cables that will hook to a variety of different ham radios, which allows you to use a serial port interface or a USB to serial port converter, to do the PTT on your radio and provide an audio link back and forth so you can send and receive audio information uh, from your radio so you can do the decoding and encoding of things like PSK-31, RIDI, and so forth. Uh, The Rascal GLX is the older version of their product. Um, You can find them at packetradio.com. If you go to packetradio.com slash catalog, you'll see all of the things that they have available. Uh, the, the GLX is an older, like I said, interface. It's really easy to use. It's fairly inexpensive. I have to say that when I was looking at the Buxcom website, packetradio.com, uh, their website is very old and it's kind of like a disaster. So I was not actually able, I mean, they, it's not organized in any way that makes sense to me. And so I was not able to actually find the prices on their product. So if you're if you're looking for the Rascal, you'll, you're just going to have to either call them or try and work your way around the PacketRadio.com website because it's uh, truly, truly a nightmare. Uh, but they also have a newer version called the Rascal Mark III, and this is one of the interfaces, the newer interfaces that does not require a serial port connection. What they have done is they've given you a two-wire connection so that it connects to your audio interface because these do not contain sound cards. The Rascals don't have built-in sound cards. So your computer has to have a sound device in order to use these. Uh, but they interface with the aux port or the mic port on your radio, and then what happens is they have a basically a Vox circuit. So as soon as there is audio detected coming out of the sound card, it will invoke PTT. So you don't actually need serial port control. It basically just does an automatic PTT when it detects audio. Uh, There are some other devices that we're going to talk about in a minute which also do this. Um, That's kind of nice in that you don't have to have your program that you're using, like FL Digi, configured for a specific COM port because... A lot of people complain that they don't know what their comport is or it's very complex to assign a specific comport or to even figure out what comport you're using when you're using a, a sound card device or a PDT device and the Rascal Mark III eliminates the need for even trying to figure out what that is. Again, both of these can be found at packetradio.com and I could not find prices on either one even though I'm on the page that shows the information, and the instructions on how to use them. So I find all of that rather pointless. However, they do have a phone number. If you really want all of the information, uh, I would just call the phone number, and they can hook you up with a specific data cable that's necessary for whatever rig that you happen to have. So um, I see there's some chatter in the chat room, so let me read it real quick. Okay, yeah, and they're all just talking about the sort of what I'm talking about. So uh, that's good, though. Keep Keep that chatter up. We like to hear uh, people talking about what we're talking about. It's always good news. So anyway, that's the first of the interfaces we're going to talk about. The uh, Rascal, both the GLX and the Mark III available from Buxcom at PacketRadio.com. That's one option. Uh, another option that's really, really popular out there and we've talked about before is the Tigertronics Signal Link USB. They actually have two Signal Links. The USB seems to be particularly popular with people for one thing, because it uses the USB interface uh, for selecting your COM port and for doing the PTT. The other nice thing about the Signalink is that it has a, an audio interface built in. It has a sound card, which means you don't actually have to have a sound card in your computer. So if you're using something that doesn't have a sound card, for example, the Signal Link might be exactly the way you want to go. According to their website, the Signalink USB combines the performance of the SL1 Plus with a built-in low-noise sound card. Uh, You only have one USB connection to the computer, and in most cases, only one connection to the radio, which is uh, usually an aux port connection or a microphone port connection to do the PTT. Uh, They also have the Signalink SL1 Plus. This is basically the same thing, except it does not use the serial or USB port, just like the Rascal Mark III it does the voice, the Vox circuit, PTT. So when it detects audio inbound from the computer, it automatically does a PTT connection to the radio, uh, opening up the mic port and allowing the audio to go out. Both of those are available. They have a price list, which is not too hard to find, actually, which is nice. Uh, The Signalink USB is $120, and the Signalink SL1 Plus is which is the one that doesn't require a USB interface, is $90. So there's your option there for the signaling. You can find that at Tigertronics.com. That's a website that is far more easy to navigate uh, and look for what you're doing. And they have uh, cables pre-built for all major radios and probably some minor ones. Uh, So for that price, you might want to check one of those out. Uh, Those are a very popular interface. Next to another popular interface that we've talked about before on the show is the Rig Blaster, which comes from West Mountain Radio. Uh, There are several versions of the Rig Blaster, everything from little USB dongles, which only do rig control, don't actually do sound stuff. They have ones that are just sound and they have ones that do both. Uh, And these all range from $55 for rig control only, uh, USB interface. To a basic, which does everything, including passing sound using a serial port uh, or USB, which costs sixty dollars. They have the plug-and-play, um, which should be you know usable by most people. Uh, provides CAT control. Has a USB interface. That one's one hundred and twenty dollars. Uh, so similar in price to the Tigertronic Signalink. And then they have some much higher-end ones. Some that include like Bluetooth connectivity, compatible with all radios, uh, use cat control or serial interface, have CW keys and stuff like that. So you, you just have to go through and see which one meets your needs. Uh, and then, of course, there are, there are cables available pre-built for all major radios and probably some minor ones for that as well. Uh, those can be upwards of $300 depending on the features that are included. Uh, the rig, blaster, the rig blaster blue with Bluetooth is two hundred. The advantage is two hundred, and the Pro, which has presumably all the features built in, not counting Bluetooth, is three hundred. So th- those are getting up there uh, a little pricey. I think they are all come with uh, an interface cable. When you buy them, you just tell them what radio you have, and they they throw in the one that you need for your particular radio. Wow, there's all kinds of chat in the room. Anyone following all this? Because <laughs> I'm not. Let's see, Lord D is in the chat room. He's, uh, let's see, there's a couple of comments here. He says, uh, by the way, Russ, I'm Kilo Delta 9, Bravo Whiskey Juliet. So very cool. Glad to know you've got your ticket now. That's that's excellent. Uh, he says, could you also mention kind of what bands or licenses these modes might apply to most? In my experience, most of these are done on high frequency when you're doing PSK and Olivia and Ridi and Hellschreiber. Those are pretty much all done on HF, which means that you probably need a general class or higher. However, the the tech plus licenses that are available as, as the base licenses in the U S provide some frequency allocation in the 10 meter band. So in the 10 meter band, and I want to say 80 meter band is two. Man, I feel like I'm out of it. But I want to say there's some availability in the 10-meter band and and the 80-meter band uh, for techs as well. And so you could use these devices as a tech. But if you want to have a full range of availability, you know, worldwide communication using the digital modes and so on, you're probably wanting a general class license in the United States. Now, I don't know how that translates across the world um because every country has you know different license classes and different allocations and stuff like that so uh but I'd say as a US ham if you want to use one of these interfaces um you will get much more satisfaction out of it if you are a general class or higher so there there is that to consider moving on from the West Mountain Radio Rig Blaster which is an interface that I also have I have the Rig Blaster plus uh, which is not manufactured anymore, but that was a nice low-cost interface. I think I, I got mine used, and I think I paid like $40 for it. Uh, so they're still out there. They're still available. You might want to check eBay or eHAM or something like that for those, and it works just fine. Again, it's a non-sound card interface. I believe some of the some of rig blasters, the more expensive ones, do have built-in sound cards. Uh, you just have to choose the one that's right for you. Uh, Next is some stuff that I was not familiar with until today. There's a website called rigexpert.com, and they have a couple of interfaces. Uh, The first one they have is the TI7. The TI7 is very similar to some of the other ones that we've already talked about. It provides an analog audio interface to, you know, your your radio from your PC. It does not have a built-in sound card. It can be operated with a USB port. Uh, it has knobs for uh, transmit and receive gain and stuff like that. And all of these interfaces have some some options on them as far as potentiometers for volume gain, uh, LEDs for showing TX and, and RX operation, whether you're using CAT control, whether the PTT is active, stuff like that. So you probably want to go check out each one and see which one meets your needs exactly. The Rigexpert TI7 is very similar to like the Signal Link. It's in, it's in a similar case. Uh, it has similar options, similar knobs, uh, things to tweak. However, it doesn't have a sound card interface, so you will need a USB port and a sound card uh, to use the Rigexpert TI7. And I don't know that there are prices for that one here. At least I don't see any listed. Unfortunately, I can't report on that. Uh, they also have, what's interesting, is a wireless interface. It's called the WTI-1, and this actually has a 25-pin interface, and they make specific data cables that inter- that connect between this uh, 25, basically RS-485 port and your radio. And then it links up wirelessly with your uh, router, your wireless router in your house. And it provides access to remote computers to your rig. The only problem with this is that in order to interface with the rig expert WTI1, you have to have the software that links to the unit that creates the virtual interface on your computer to the radio. And that is Windows only. So if you want to use this, it's only available for Windows but if you don't mind that, yeah, I mean, because you can run FL Digi on Windows. If you want to use FL Digi on Windows and, re- and do this remote connection, you can do that uh, using the Rig Expert WTI1. Just remember that it is only Windows. And, again, I do not see information on pricing on this, uh, so I have no idea how much it costs. Um, let me see. There's a link on the website for purchase options, and that's producing a 404. So they may not even be making these anymore, but... If that's something you want, remote wireless access, you might want to give that one a try, uh, which is at rigexpert.com. Another one, the next one that we're going to talk about is one that we have talked about before, and that is the MicroHam interface. And they have several, uh, but MicroHam makes some very nice interfaces. They have four different ones that are sort of in this group that we're talking about. The first one is the USB Interface 2. This one does radio control uh, for CW and push to talk. It does not. It is USB, uh, as USB interface 2 would indicate. As far as I know, this one does not have a built-in uh, sound card, so you will need an external sound card. This one goes for €80. Euro, so whatever €80 Euro is equivalent in your country, that's what it goes for. They have available interfaces for ICOM, Tentech, Yezu, Kenwood, Ellacraft, pre-built, so you can get any of those uh, using the USB Interface 2. Uh, the USB Interface 3 is basically the same as the USB Interface 2, except it has a built-in sound card, so that eliminates you having to have a sound card in your computer like all the other interfaces that have a built-in sound card do. Again, you can get them with Cables built for Elecraft, Icom, Kenwood, Tentec, and Yaesu. So if you have one of those rigs, you're great. Otherwise, you'll have to build your own or find another company that is building them uh, for the micro-ham USB interface. Uh, the Model 3 uh, costs €115, Euro, and you need, of course, to select the cable that goes with your particular rig when you when you do that. Uh, it does have a a, a comprehensive list uh, or a set of uh, LEDs for showing operational control, and it does have two potentiometers for TX and RX levels, uh, which is nice. They also have a couple of other ones. There is the USB MK2R+, Plus, which they claim are the most advanced, flexible, and capable two radio interfaces available. These are useful if you have two rigs and you're doing multi-operation whether for contesting or you know you just you just happen to have two rigs set up like maybe a six meter and then a full HF or something like that. Uh, this allows integration with two radios simultaneously. These also have lots of other features: um, <clears throat> rig control for two separate radios, independent PTT, power amplifier control, CW wind keyer, audio switching. And, and all kinds of stuff. These uh, have tons and tons of features over the other things that we've been talking about. Uh, they do have cables for flex, as well as uh, JRC, um, including TenTech, Kenwood, Icom, Yezu Elecraft, and so on. Uh, so uh, a few more cabling options, but these are getting into the very pricey area. The MK2R Plus, is 635 euro so it's only for somebody who really wants like tons and tons of features because it pretty much does everything there's there's another option called the micro 2r or the u2r uh again it's a two radio interface you can connect your headphones to it it has paddle mic foot switch control for your radios two radios simultaneously uh speed control for the built-in keyer Again, uh, LEDs to show operation, TX and RX volume, stuff like that. A little less pricey, well, actually considerably less pricey than the MK2R+. Plus. The U2R goes for 265 euro. And then I believe you have to select a cable for your particular device. and I believe that is extra on the U2R. At least according to the website, it seems to be extra. So... Another one, uh, full-featured and does support two ham radios at the same time, however, uh, fairly pricey on the market there compared to some of the other options. But again, one to look at is if you're a serious uh, and have multi-radio set up and you really want the accessibility that that gives you, uh, you can find those at microham.com, www.microham.com. And the last interface that uh, I'm going to talk about is one that I had never heard of until today, but it's made by ZLP Electronics. Uh, you can find this at www.g4zip.co. Uh, sorry, www.g4zlp.co.uk. These are basically like black box interfaces. There are several of them available. They're called Digimaster. Uh, there's the Mini Pro, the Mini Pro SC, the Data Link, the Pro Plus, and the Pro Three. Uh, as, as they go up, as I've read them, they have different features. Uh, the first one doesn't have any, like, potentiometers for uh, audio control or anything like that. It's it's a dirt-cheap interface just so you can uh, get your radio connected to do all sound card control and volume control using uh, the existing devices. It's basically just for push-to-talk. And then as they go up in price, they go up in features as well. Uh, some are serial-based, some are USB-based, and so on. Uh, there's a nice matrix of information at the website, uh, the link to, to which, of course, will be in the show notes. These start at $45 US for the Mini Pro, and for the Pro 3, that's $210 US, 210 And, of course, they have uh, cables available for all of the major brands, again, uh, Kenwood, let's see elocraft icom uh yezu and it looks like that's it so i mean all of these are customizable you can create your own cables all you have to know is the pinouts on your accessory ports or your or your mic ports uh and you can make a cable for anything uh regardless of the interface that you choose to use and there are tons of them out there you just have to choose which ones uh, meet your needs, which ones have the indicators which show operation, which ones have the potentiometers and the controls and allow you the accessibility to use one radio, two radios, USB interfaces, serial interfaces, no interfaces, you know whether it's VoX controlled or not. And you just have to compare each device and the price that you're going to pay for each of these devices and figure out which one is the one that's going to meet your needs. So again, uh, that last one, you can find at uh, www.g4zlp.co.uk and links to all of these, which by the way, were Buckscom, Tigertronics, West Mountain Radio, Rig Expert, Micro Ham, and ZLP Electronics will be in the show notes. Like I said, I have two of these. I have the Rascal GLX and I have the West Mountain Radio Rig Blaster Plus. Um, I have not had any problem with any of these interfaces. They all work really well. Most of them are fairly simple to install. They're cross-platform because they're basically just hardware interfaces. So they're, generally speaking, software agnostic, except, except of course, for the rig expert WTI1, which provides wireless control. So hopefully this will help you uh, at least give you some resources to find the information about these interfaces if you want to do digital modes and allow you to do a little bit uh, better research uh, and choose the options and the price that are right for you. So before we move on, let me just go ahead and check the chat room, make sure there are no questions. You know, if there aren't, I will move along and if there are, I will try to answer them. Well, the talk in the chat room has uh, turned to D star and like DV dongles and DV apps, which is beyond the scope of this uh, HF radio interface that we're talking about. Maybe next time around we can talk about D star a little bit more and about the interfaces that are available uh, for doing, for doing D-Star and stuff like that, because there are, there are a few of those as well, and it might be useful for people who are who are wanting to get into D-Star. But uh, since we're not talking about D-Star, we're talking about ham radio interfaces uh, for HF and uh, digital modes like PSK31 and stuff like that. I don't see any uh, conversation about that in the chat room, so we are going to move on. And moving on means we've come to the music. So that's good. That means I get to take a quick uh, talking break. That's good right now because I could use one. So anyway, we're gonna we're gonna hit the music, and on this, tonight we are going to listen to a group called Dean Moore. This is a group that's out of the Netherlands. The song you're going to hear is called "Liars." It's off the album "The Storm Is Over," courtesy of Jumendo, of course. This one came out in July of 2010. It runs about three and three-quarter minutes. Um, this is definitely on the heavier side, so right up my alley. And I know some people enjoy that kind of music and some people don't, but, you know, that's exactly what you're going to get. So here's Liars by Dean Moore. We'll be back in uh, just under four minutes to continue the program. And that was Dean Moore with Liars. I actually like that one. That was a real good one. And Lord D in the chat room said, if the music doesn't make me want to rip my best friend's face off and eat it while he's headbanging, then it's not music. So there you go. Apparently that fits the bill. And let me see. I think think my microphone's a little hot. So let me back it off just a hair. All right, cool. We're cool now. So that's the music. And we don't have Pete here to disagree with me about it. So we're just going to have to move on. So, segment four is announcements and feedback. We do have a couple of pieces of feedback we can get to. The first one is a Google Plus post from John McGrath, Kilo Fox 6, Echo Fox Golf. And he says, I went out to the site to follow the link to La Hollow and noticed that the show is boasting that it has only 3% more badgers. Unfortunately, this falls below my threshold for badger-related material, and I will have to stop listening until the podcast slash site exceeds the 4% badger limit. Happy New Year. Great show regarding scale this week. Keep up the good work. Seven threes, Kilo, Fox 6, Echo, Fox Golf. Well, you know what that means. We're going to have to add some badgers.
0: Well, yeah, of course.
1: Well, we're not going to do it tonight, probably, because Pete's not here. He's the one who who invokes all of the badgering. So. We, not always. Well, it, he's right sometimes up there. Sometimes you slip up. I, I do sometimes slip up. But anyway, I, I uh, thanks, John, for the feedback, and I promise we will try and uh, exceed the 4% Badger threshold uh, in, in upcoming yeah. episodes because we, we want to keep you as a listener. And if that's what it takes, we're, we'll do it. Try. Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. So thanks for writing. Happy New Year to you and I uh, really appreciate you as a listener. And thanks again for the feedback. So, oh, and as far as the Google Plus community, Linux and the Ham Shack, if you haven't already subscribed to it, you probably should. I checked it today and we have 1,750 members in there. So that's very cool. And there's lots of good discussion in there. People ask questions about antennas and digital modes and all kinds of things. And uh, there are lots of people in there who can give you help and answers when uh, you're not listening to the show, you know, sort of in between the 14 days when the show comes out. If you have questions, check out the Linux and the Hamshack Google Plus community. It's a great resource. And thanks, everybody, for being a part of it. Uh, Next, we have a comment on episode number 155 from Scott Pettigrew, N8VSI. He says, does anyone know where plans can be found for the lollipop node, as Frank talked about in episode number 155? I want to say that Frank sent me a link to where that information was available, but I have not been able to find it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Frank where to find it, and then I will pass that information along to you uh, via email, Scott and then I will post that information in the show notes as well so people will have access to it. Uh, Back in episode number 155, we did talk with Frank, and he talked about having portable, battery-powered wireless nodes uh, for HSMM that were basically self-contained, and you could set them up in a mesh network uh, at a remote deployment and provide wireless access to anybody in the area. If this is something you're looking for, we will definitely make sure we can find out where to get the information for building these lollipop nodes uh, so you can do it for your organization or event as well. And with that, that's all the feedback and the announcements we have since there were no announcements at all. So we're on to Cheryl's Recipe Corner. Yay! Yay. So what do we got tonight?
0: Tonight is a Parmesan crusted chicken that uses uh, pre-made salad dressing. As the base for your uh, rice crispy and parmesan coating makes sense. Oh, no. you're,
1: I'm sorry. I'm trying to answer a question in the chat room.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've read. You're either ignoring me or whatever. No, so, no, I'm not ignoring you. So anyway, um, the recipe that I have tonight is for chicken uh, covered in uh, crispy rice cereal, uh, known as rice crispies in the U.S. and probably across the world. I don't know how far. Uh, Kellogg's reaches out.
1: Uh, I think Rice Krispies are pretty much everywhere. Yeah, you could pretty, probably yeah, get them much. in Bangladesh, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> our our Bangladeshian is
1: yeah, in San Francisco it's limited. right now. Yeah,
0: yeah. So anyway, um, you use, the, the specific recipe calls for Russian dressing. A lot of people don't like that, but it's, you know, you can use ranch dressing. You can use a French dressing, you know, whatever you want. As long as it's a creamy dressing, not something like a vinegar and oil. Uh, so you need dressing. You need crispy rice cereal. You need parmesan, some chicken, and some butter. And you bake this. And apparently, it is one of those fantastic recipes. We have not, of course, tried this. So.
1: What do you mean? Of course, we've tried most of the stuff you.
0: No, you- no, but this is one of those because I'm like, that. Ah. Recipe time. I don't have a recipe. Here we go. <laughs> oh, my God. So, the
1: show's like in five minutes. I need this. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. And I was too busy noshing out pecans and beef jerky in the kitchen. So <laughs> And brats. And don't brats. For, yeah, yeah don't, don't forget the don't brats. Don't forget the brats. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so we we will put this on our to-try list probably sometime this week. We have lots of leftovers to clean up, but hopefully we can squeeze it in sometime this week and try it.
1: Sounds good. And, of course, the information on how to make this and what ingredients are in it will be in the show notes, as they always are.
0: Yes, it's very, very easy.
1: So yep. Most of the recipes you do are very easy. I've noticed there's a trend there.
0: I don't like to drag out a whole bunch of, you know. I When I'm cooking at home, I will fix a 20-ingredient recipe, but I don't like to do that to other people. I don't like doing that to myself very often. So I
1: don't either, because I usually have to clean it up.
0: Oh, please.
1: Don't <laughs> no, give me please. You know it's true.
0: <laughs> I cook, you clean. That's <laughs> so. all,
1: right. all right. So that's the uh, Cheryl's recipe corner for tonight. So now we're at the social media roundup. So Woo-hoo! let's do it.
0: All right, tonight for donations and subscriptions, we have Dylan Engel and Ronald Nesler on Facebook. We have Phil Belts, Andrew Stevens, Ron uh Felix Loya the Third. John McDonald, Eduardo Filippi Mert, Chuck Davis, Chris Boone, Lance Rickens, or Richens, and Vinilin Shahab Nobody joined us on Google+. You should, you know, Russ mentioned that earlier. On Twitter, we have at SteenCJ, at SocialHams, at H-R-I-Day-B-A-L-A.
1: That's Rade Bala. He was our guest last week.
0: Gotcha. Okay, sorry. i I just, Bala was... Uh, At APRS Pro, at Scott underscore WZ0W, and at GVMark underscore PIO. Nobody joined us on YouTube. Mark Gilliam joined us on our mailing list, and Darren King bought something from us.
1: That's right. Darren King bought a T-shirt from us. Yay! We don't often get to say we had merch sales, but we get to say it this time. And also, we had someone on the mailing list. So, very cool. And uh, for those of you who haven't figured it out already, we do have social media connections all over the Internet. You've heard them all, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, uh, YouTube. We have a mailing list, and we do have merch at cafepress.com, and you'll hear more about that in a second. So, you know, be a part of that. Um, we do have an ambassador. Our, our friend Rich, KD0RG, will be an ambassador at the North Car- uh, North Carolina. Yeah, right north colorado linux fest coming up towards the end of this month Woo-hoo! uh so if you happen to be somewhere in north colorado i guess you could check that out but rich will be there representing linux in the ham shack at that ham fest so that's very cool
0: and everybody should go say rich because he's absolutely hilarious he
1: is absolutely hilarious and that i believe is on the 23rd to 3 of january 2016 so check that out because we'll be there sort of in spirit yeah yeah or something or maybe, maybe we'll just, like, get a wild hair up our ass and drive to northern Colorado. Yeah, that's a
0: badger moment right there. You just said
1: ass. <coughs> no, ass doesn't get badgered. Oh, ass doesn't get, get badgered. No, ass doesn't get badgered. So
0: You really want to go to Colorado in the middle of January.
1: Hey, I'm fine with it.
0: It could be a bad,
1: it, bad experience. It, it could be, but, yeah. All right, so you know what? We're down to the end of the show. We didn't have Yay. a Pete again, but hopefully he'll be near. He'll be near. Well, maybe he'll be near, but hopefully he'll be here next week. Uh, He's been
0: absent for, what, three weeks now?
1: I know, he's such a douche. That's mean. True, but also true.
0: True, mean and true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's not around, so we can say whatever we want about it.
0: Yeah, and he never listens to the podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, apparently he does every once in a while.
0: Oh, oh no.
1: Yeah, okay, that could be a problem. All right, we're going to get on out of here, which means I've got to push the button, which I just did, and there's some music in the background, so... That's right. The show is over, folks. And you can become an LHS ambassador. We just talked about ambassadors. You can visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby Linux and or Ham Fest. We love feedback. You can email us at info at LHSpodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter, or leave a voicemail for us at one nine zero nine lhs show that's one nine zero nine five four seven seven four six nine. You can visit our IRC channel, hash LHS podcast on the free node network. You can also subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs and t-shirts can be purchased at cafepress.com com slash LHS podcast. And as you just heard, someone did that. That's very cool. It helps us out. You can also help the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right hand column of the homepage. You can listen to us live every other Monday at 8 o'clock Central Time, which in the winter is Tuesday, 0100 Zulu. So check us out then. Our recording schedule and our countdown timer to the next episode are on the website, which is lhspodcast.info. Everything you ever wanted to know about the show is at that URL. Thank you to all of our listeners live, quasi-live, past, present, and future. We appreciate each and every one of you. So this is Russ, K5TUX, and Cheryl is over there.
0: Hello, everybody, and goodbye.
1: And this has been episode number 159 of Linux in the Hamshack. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, from the southwest corner of Missouri, we will be talking to you again in only a week's time this time.
0: Oh, no, a week.
1: Yeah, I know. It's only a week. But we'll see you all soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. the king of bitch.